This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father Fred Gatchett talks about judging others. Is judging others wrong? Can judging actually show Christian charity to others? Well, let's find out. Here's the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina, Father Fred Gatchett. Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatchett, and you are tuned in to another installment of the Double-Edged Sword program. And we're broadcasting to you from the KVDM Pavilion in downtown Hayes, Kansas. That's what we try to do here on every episode of the Double-Edged Sword program. We're glad to have you here again with us. We are definitely cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. Well, really, the whole question of judging and people's attitudes about what they think judging is about and what it isn't probably comes from people just kind of memorizing and learning certain isolated pieces of scripture without really knowing what the Bible says in its entirety. I remember some years ago, I used to see a lot of nursing home masses and I was at a nursing home one time and one of the nurse assistants comes up and and I was setting up for mass and she says, oh, you know, can I talk to you when you get through with mass? And I said, sure. And so she comes up and says, well, I'm not Catholic, but I, I just, I, something's really been bothering me. And I said, well, what's that? And she says, well, I had jury duty last week and we, I sat on the jury and we judged someone. And it says in the Bible not to judge, right? Well, I mean, it's that kind of a really kind of a twisted notion of what, this, what people think the scripture says that I think we should really kind of take a look at here and try to get a, get a better handle on. I think it's primarily due to biblical ignorance, you know, that um, people don't know the entirety of scripture and also kind of a general moral cowardice. You know, we're kind of moral cowards in our day that's pervasive in our politically correct culture that there's this tremendous misunderstanding is what the Bible really teaches and what is really required of us as Christians regarding making judgments on the actions and behaviors of both ourselves and others. You know, usually, you know, you'll hear something like um, someone's, you know, behaving in some irresponsible way. Maybe, you know, you have someone that moved in with their boyfriend or girlfriend and they're, you know, just shacking up, living together in a life of fornication and nobody really cares. Or, you know, maybe someone's drinking too much and just kind of acting irresponsibly, whatever the case might be. And if you go up to such a person and say, you know, and even in, in total Christian charity, you're not going up and trying to morally beat them up, but you're just kind of saying, look, should you really be doing that? Have you thought about the long-term consequences of, of cohabitation? I know Father Josh has talked about that quite often here on, on Double-Edged Sword. And, um, or, you know, should you be drinking that much? Whatever the case might be. And usually the answer, kind of the, the, the stock defense that people have, is to say, how dare you judge me? It says in the Bible not to judge. You know, you call yourself a Christian. You go to church on Sunday. Doesn't your Bible that you claim to believe in, doesn't it say not to judge other people? Or so on. That's one side of it. The flip side of it is this. A otherwise morally upright person, someone's doing the best they can to lead the best life they can, and they see someone, maybe even someone they love, it could be a spouse, a child, you know, a sibling, you know, a co-worker, someone that we care a lot about, and we see them going off the reservation, as it were. You know, we see them, you know, going into some way of living their life where they're just destroying themselves, and we let it happen. And we sit back and we say things, well, you know, I suppose I should have said something, but who am I to judge? Or the misquote from Jesus in John chapter 8, well, I'm certainly not perfect, so who am I to cast the first stone? 
Well, I think the real question that we have to answer and what really has to be looked at here is, does God really intend us to use his word as an excuse for our own sinful behavior? That is to say, if someone comes up to me and says, Father, what are you doing? You know, you're doing such and such a thing and this is not good. And I fire back with it says in the Bible not to judge. Is that why God inspired the scriptures to be used as an excuse, to be used as ammunition to defend oneself for their own immoral behavior? I mean, obviously, I don't think so. Do God's teaching instruct us to stand idly by and say and do nothing as one of our brothers or sisters destroys themselves? Again, I don't think so. And that's what we're going to kind of look at here. Now, so I think what we want to look at is what the Bible says in its totality about judging others and see what the act of judging really means. Usually when people cite the Bible as saying, you know, you, you know, we're not supposed to judge, they might look, for example, at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, where Jesus says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Or maybe St. Paul in Romans 14.10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all must stand before the judgment seat of God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Or the letter of James, chapter 4, verse 12 tells us, There is one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, taking that handful of verses, you can probably make a pretty good case and say, look, it says in the Bible not to judge. The problem is, is it ignores the rest of what the Bible says. And so we have to kind of look at the, the whole of the Bible, what the whole of the Bible says about judging. You know, for example, in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, Moses tells the people, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor shall you defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Also in Ezekiel chapter 3, and also God repeats this to Ezekiel in chapter 33. And it's kind of a lengthy quote. So um, if you kind of bear with me here so we can get through this, but um, listen carefully. God says to Ezekiel, son of man, I have appointed you as a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak to out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his sin, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you have warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his sin, but you will have saved yourself." Again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle before him, he will die. Since you have not warned him, he shall die in his sin, and his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. However, if you have warned the righteous man, and the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning, and you will have delivered yourself." So again, God tells Ezekiel there in chapter 3, and again, he repeats the same thing in chapter 33, where he tells Ezekiel, he says, look, I'm sending you to these people, and you tell them to straighten up. Now, if they don't straighten up after you've told them, then you've done your part, and you're, you, know, you and me are still good, Ezekiel. But if I send you to them, and you don't tell them to straighten up, and they die in their sin, I will hold you, Ezekiel, responsible. That should send shivers through most of us, I would think. 
Those who fear the Lord, the book of Sirach says, will form true judgments, and they will kindle righteous deeds like a light. So again, the book of Sirach tells us to form true judgments. Now, it is clear by these passages that God expects us to judge, and he expects us to judge fairly. And furthermore, according to what God has revealed to Ezekiel, if we stand idly by, saying and doing nothing, while someone else destroys himself because of their sins, God is going to hold us responsible. And we'll see that a little bit later in in what we see from the letter of James. But it might be worthwhile to consider our own final judgment before God. I mean, in my own opinion, I believe that one of the horrific things that we will all face on the day of judgment, maybe some of us more so than others, is even if God finds us worthy of heaven, we still have to have our actions judged before Almighty God. And I just kind of wonder if God isn't going to reveal to us the souls, the specific souls that are burning in hell for all eternity and say, I want you to see that person down there suffering because he's not getting out. He's going to be there for all eternity. She will be there forever. And it's because you didn't say something when you had the chance. That's very much in keeping with what God tells Ezekiel. When he says, if, you, if I send you to the wicked and you don't speak out to him, then the wicked's going to die. The wicked's going to burn in hell. But I will hold you responsible. His blood I will require at your hand, God tells Ezekiel. Well, again, I think it's sort of the same thing, that whenever we appear before the judgment seat of God, I believe that probably one of the aspects of our judgment will, again, will be God revealing to us the people that are burning in hell because they were going down the path of destruction and any one of us sat by and said and did nothing. And you think that if you say, well, but God, it says in the Bible not to judge, you know, who was I to remove the, the, the splinter from my neighbor's eye when I had the log lodged in my own? Who was I to cast the first stone? I don't think that if we start firing Bible verses back at God like that, that he's going to be satisfied. So I don't think that's going to work. Also, then, um, if you look in, some people will say, well, but, you know, you're quoting Ezekiel, you're quoting Sirach, that's the Old Testament, you know, the New Testament law, you know, is the law of love and so on. And so people will say that you can't really cite the Old Testament as an authority for that. Well, you know, we can look and see what Jesus himself says in the Gospel of St. Matthew. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets in Matthew 5, 17 through 18. I did not come to abolish them, to, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of the, of the law shall pass until it is all accomplished. So in the mind of Jesus, you know, we're not going to just look at the Old Testament and say, well, that's Old Testament, it has no meaning. Um, Jesus comes to give it its complete meaning. Now, so then what do we do? See, with the New Testament, what does it say about judging? For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1-3, to St. Paul says, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge the angels? How much more in matters of this life? In other words, what St. Paul was telling the first Christians there was when they had some kind of a legal argument with their Christian neighbor, with their Christian brother, St. Paul is saying, why do you go to the Roman courts? Why do you go to the civil courts? Certainly you're smart enough and you're governed by charity enough between two Christians that you can sit down and 
work this out among yourselves. Because St. Saint Paul says you better get used to judging these insignificant things. You know, maybe somebody has a dispute about a property line or somebody has a, you know, some kind of a business argument or something like that, that they didn't get their money's worth, whatever the case might be. St. Paul is saying that's pretty insignificant compared to the fact that God has told us that if you make it to heaven, you will sit in judgment over the angels. If you can't handle that, how are you going to handle the little tiny things of this life? And so again, St. Paul is telling us to get used to judging, because assuming we make it to heaven, we will sit in judgment over all the lesser creatures, such as the angels. Also, the very last part of the letter of James, the last two verses from James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, James um, tells us, this is kind of in keeping with Ezekiel's prophecy, James says, My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth, and anyone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from his error of his way will save the sinner's soul from death and cover a multitude of his own sins. So James is telling us that if, if one of us can go up to someone and say, look, you're off the path, you know, what's going on? What can we do to help you get back on the path of right and good here? And if we succeed in getting them to come back, St. James says, we will save that person's soul from death. We'll keep that person from going to hell and we will cover a multitude of our own sins. This is something we might refer to as middle salvation. Um, it's not eternal salvation because the only one that can, can gain eternal salvation for us is Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. Um, but the Bible talks about saving souls all over the place, and um, St. Paul talks about that as well. And so when we talk about this kind of salvation, it's talking about bringing someone back you know, from the, from the path of badness that they're on. And so we might properly call that middle salvation, with eternal salvation being understood, um, being going to heaven on the merits of Jesus Christ. But you can see this is like Ezekiel's prophecy. There is a promise that's been made by God to the person who brings the sinner back. The only way that any one of us could turn a sinner from his error is to judge that what he was doing was an error to begin with. You know, we're going to have to make a judgment. We're going to have to say, whatever it is this person is doing, their living arrangements, their business dealings, their relationship with their family, you know, what they're drinking, how they're spending their money, whatever the case might be, we look at that and we say, this is not good. This person is doing something that's going to bring them harm and probably bring harm to their family and people around them. We have to make that judgment. Now, very probably that when that happens, we go up to someone and say, what are you doing? And again, like we said at the beginning of the broadcast, there will be people firing back with, well, you know, it says in the Bible not to judge, you know, who are you to judge me and so on. We also have the teaching from Jesus in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 3, verse 5. Again, this is one of the ones that gets misquoted quite a bit. Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Again, that's Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. Now, this is the rest of the teaching of, of judging from Matthew 7. Most people leave the last part out. Most people look at the part that says, how can you take the speck out of your brother's eye when you had the log lodged in your own, and they quit there. But you can see what Jesus is saying is, is he's challenging us to something a little bit tougher, quite a bit tougher. Far from being an excuse for sinful behavior, it's a challenge for the would-be follower of Jesus to have our own moral house in order. All right? We have to have our own moral house in order so that 
when we go and try to bring a, you know someone that's off the off the path, we can be a credible agent. Um, Jesus wants us to help others to come back onto the road of righteousness. So it should be clear from these passages that the New Testament, the likes of Jesus, St. Paul, St. James, consider judging the actions of others part, it's an integral part of the life of the Christian. It is not optional and it is certainly not forbidden. Jesus and St. Paul even say that if a person doesn't shape up and repent, that the Christian should have nothing more to do with such a person. So taken as a whole, the sublime teachings found in the Bible are challenging us to something very lofty and very difficult. We are to use the mind and the intellect that God gave us to make wise and prudent and lasting judgments, just judgments, on the actions of ourselves and others. And here's the other part, is that the, the, the motivator for this, if I'm going to go and offer correction, we, you know, the, the classical Christian moral theology term for this is called fraternal correction, correcting my brother, correcting my sister. If I'm going to offer fraternal correction, I have to be genuinely motivated by Christian charity, by a Christ-like love for this person. If I'm going to go up to someone and say, you're wrong, I'm right, you're a bad person, and I'm just basically going to, you know, kind of in, a, in, in sort of a, a moral, you know, berating of this person, just kind of morally beat them up, they're not going to listen to me, and they probably shouldn't. I have to be motivated. Any one of us that's going to try to bring the sinner back, we have to be motivated by a true sense of Christian charity and love for this person that we can go up to him and say, hey, you know, I'm your friend. What's going on? What can we do? What can I do to you know, help you, you know, get back on the path here? Um, so the first thing is, I think that it, you know, once we make the judgment, is we have to be motivated by Christian charity. We, we don't want to go in with a desire to belittle someone else, to prove someone wrong and prove me right, to make them look bad and make me look superior somehow. That's not going to work. That's the first thing. The second thing is we have to have our own moral house in order so that when, not if, but when we correct someone else, we'll be believable. Again, if I'm going up to someone, and, and again, this doesn't really do anybody any good. Someone could come up to any one of us and say, I'm doing something wrong, whatever it is. Maybe someone comes up to me and says, hey, you're drinking too much. What's the, what's the deal here? And I know this person drinks like a fish. Well, my, my initial defense is going to be, well, who are you to talk to me about drinking? Look, what, look how much you drink. And that's kind of a, a hollow defense because it ignores the objective status of how much I might be drinking. You know, if, if I'm drinking too much, it doesn't make a difference who's telling me that I'm drinking too much. It's still true. But the problem is, is again, it's just it's too easy of a defense for me to fire back with, well, who are you to tell me about my drinking when, you know, you drink like a fish yourself? That's unfortunate that I would do that, but that's the defense that most of us will always go to. That's why... It's important then that when I go to correct someone, that I've got my own moral house in order first. If I have my moral house in order and I approach this person in true Christian charity, they're going to sense that. I mean, someone's going to sense someone coming in, they're going to smell it a mile away. That if I'm coming in just to berate them and to prove me good and them bad, they're not going to listen to me. But they're also going to be able to tell very, very quickly that if I'm truly motivated by Christian charity and I've done my best to keep my own moral house in order, chances are they're going to listen to me. And, you know, without getting defensive, and, you know, and again, in, in Catholic theology, this is called fraternal correction. 
Now, what if I do all this? What if I've made my judgment? What if I've gotten to the best I can? None of us are perfect. We know that. But the best I can, I've done everything to get my moral house in order. And I've gone up to this person. And in true Christian charity, I've confronted somebody on whatever it is that needs to be confronted. And they don't want to listen to me. Well, then what do I do? Well, I tell you what, we're going to take a little break here for a few minutes. And when we get back, we'll talk about the really tough business of working with the person that's not really much interested in repenting. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. back bringing you um, Catholic Radio and the Double-Edged Sword program. I am Father Fred Gatchett. I'm the pastor at um, St. Joseph's Parish here in Hayes, as well as the chaplain at the Como Catholic Campus Center. And um, we're glad to be with you here for another installment of the Double-Edged Sword program. And the topic we've been discussing is the topic of judging. And if we, when the Bible says not to judge our neighbor, if we don't want to be judged ourselves and what all that means. Pretty much in the previous section, we figured out that the Bible actually requires us to judge, that it requires us to judge fairly, and that it requires us to keep our own moral house in order so that when we judge, that um, we ourselves are credible witnesses, and that when we have to go up and, and, and pronounce a judgment on our brother or our sister, that we're motivated by true Christian charity, that we're doing this out of true love and concern for the well-being of this particular person, and not just, again, just to kind of go in and morally berate them and belittle them and try to make ourselves coming out looking superior. That doesn't do anybody any good. But now, what happens, though, if that's exactly what I've done? Again, I'm going to be the first person to admit to, the, to this other person I'm trying to correct. I'm going to say, well, of course, you know, I'm not saying that I'm, you know, this upstanding example of moral perfection, but I do my best to do the best I can as often as I can. And really, it's out of because I care about you. I love you dearly. I just can't sit by and watch you take this path of destruction and so on. And I, you know, we need to talk about this. Usually, again, I think we can expect such a person to fire back with the defenses that we've been all conditioned with in our perverted culture of saying, well, who are you to judge me? It says in the Bible not to judge. You're not perfect. Who are you to cast the first stone and so on? We're going to hear that. Well, again, hopefully if I've approached this person with with my own, you know, moral cards, you know, stacked up right and I've approached them with with true love and charity, maybe they'll listen to me. But what if they don't? All right. Um, This is a reading we had from Mass just about a week or so ago from Matthew 18. Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Now, let's just look at that piece right there. First of all, how can I tell if my brother sinned against me? And second of all, how can I go show him his fault in private unless I have judged what he has done? I mean, it's just kind of a no-brainer. So, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother back. But if he does not listen to you, then take one or two along with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. That comes from the law of Moses. Moses said to have, have, have witnesses to give testimony. So on the, on, the, on the eyewitness testimony of two or three witnesses, the facts can be established. 
Then, Jesus says he refuses to listen to them, to those two or three, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Well, what do they do with tax Gentiles and collect tax collectors? They threw them out. They had nothing to do with them. And so Jesus is telling us that if somebody does something wrong like that, we go and the first thing we want to do is keep it among ourselves. We don't want to go try to publicly humiliate someone. Just go to the individual, individually, talk with them privately, and try to win them back. If that doesn't work, then take a couple of others along. Say, look, we're all concerned about you. If that doesn't work, you know, he says, take it to the church. I mean, I don't know if that means bring them to the church on Sunday, but it means, you know, make it public. And if they don't listen after that, then have nothing more to do with them. There's a reason for that one. We'll talk about that in a second. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 13, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous, the swindlers, or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So what's St. Paul saying there? Basically, he's saying that, first of all, he's telling the Christian believer, don't worry about the non-Christians. Don't worry about the people who have who just expressed no interest whatsoever in struggling and trying to live the Christian life. God will judge them. Those who are outside, God judges. But St. Paul says, I'm talking about the ones on the inside. I'm talking about the ones who claim to be a brother, a so-called brother, a so-called Christian. If he is an immoral person, a covetous person, or idolater, just have nothing to do with them. Don't even eat with them. All right? Then in Titus, St. Paul says to, to Titus, after a first or second admonition, have nothing more to do with anyone who is causing divisions, since you know such a person is perverted, sinful, and being self-condemned. Now, how is the Christian to determine if what is immoral and who not to associate with unless you judge the person's actions? This is the basis for what the church calls excommunication. That sometimes you have someone who is just so recalcitrant and so set in their ways that they don't want, they have, it isn't so much that they are disagreeing with you. They just have no desire. They have no desire to repent. They have no desire to follow the, the ways that, that our Lord has taught us. And St. Paul and both Jesus and St. Paul say, throw them out, have nothing more to do with them. Well, Why? Again, our particular culture, we have taken some ideas that in their in and of themselves probably have a certain grain of truth and goodness to them. Um, but at the same time, when they're taken as absolutes, then all kinds of sort of twisted and, and distorted things come out of them. We're told over and over again how we're supposed to be inclusive and we're supposed to be tolerant and we're supposed to be open-minded and so on. Well, you know, being in, you know, including others in our activities and excluding people for no good reason that's not a good thing. Um, being tolerant or being open-minded or celebrating diversity and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, as far as they go, that's probably okay. But what's, what's happened in our times though is, is that people say, well, if you're going to be open-minded, it means you have to accept everything. If you're going to be inclusive, you have to include everyone, regardless of what they do or how they act. If you're going to be open-minded, you have to be open to accepting anything that comes along. 
Again, one of my favorite lines is in our day and age, most people's minds are so open that everything fell out. And so that doesn't really work either. And so I think the first thing that what we have to do is when someone receives this correction in, tr in the true spirit of Christian charity, hopefully they would see the consequences of their actions and seriously reconsider them hopefully repent of them, and then be reintegrated back into the Christian family. That is the ultimate hope of the act of excommunication. The church doesn't excommunicate folks that much anymore, and I think the reason for it is is when you look at the people that hold the really strange um, and, and anti-Christian agendas, such as the abortion agenda, the same-sex marriage agenda, and things like that, if the church was to excommunicate such a one, I think for most people in the circles that they run around in, that would be a badge of honor. And so it's almost like the you know a lot of times I think people get a little bit frustrated with the bishops, and they go, gee, why doesn't Bishop so-and-so just excommunicate, you know, for example, that particular politician, that person that goes to Washington, they claim to be Catholic, when it gets them the Catholic vote, but they turn around and vote for gay marriage and abortion rights. Why doesn't the bishop just excommunicate them? Well, I think the reason why the bishop probably doesn't is because if he did, it would just make such, it would make that person a hero in the eyes of the abortion rights and gay marriage people, and it would really kind of be counterproductive. But the idea, though, behind excommunication is not just to kick people out and, and cut them off like, you know, throw them out like yesterday's garbage. The idea is to hopefully get them to see the error of their ways and get them to repent and hopefully get them to come back. But at the same time, you might just have some recalcitrant soul who simply return, refuses to come around. And that can be difficult because then what do we do? If you have someone like that that just is not going to repent, they have no intention whatsoever, they've made up their mind that they are going to follow on this path. And then, you know, again, Jesus and St. Paul say, have nothing to do with them. They're self-condemned, you know, don't, you know, St. Paul says, don't eat with them, don't have anything more to do with them. Well... And then what are we supposed to do? In the in the Old Testament, there were a bunch of places where, in the, in the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy, where God tells Moses, if somebody does such and such a thing, they are to be cut off from Israel. And that is to say, the, uh, the second um, motivation behind excommunication or throwing someone out of the Christian community is like, it's like cutting out a tumor. It's like cutting off a gangrenous limb. You know, that for the community's good health, um, for the good of everybody else, you have to cut the cancer out, you have to cut the infection out and cast it aside. And so, again, that's one of the other reasons why we would have to do that. Now, so again, I think that it's kind of this tragically flawed reading of Scripture. And where does this, you know, these tragically flawed readings of Scripture come from? I think it comes from, you know, Martin Luther's tragically flawed idea that since every believer is equipped by the Holy Spirit, they can interpret the Bible on their own. And so then what happens is you have millions and millions of people out there reading their Bibles and saying, well, I've got the spirit of Jesus inside of me, and so I can interpret this scripture for myself. And in so doing then, you know, then we have all these problems. And so I, I think that we have to kind of get back to, as we say, reading the scriptures with the mind of the church. And one of the things that we have to do, if we're going to start quoting scripture and throwing Bible verses around, is just ask yourself this one question. Have you read the Bible cover to cover? 
from Genesis 1-1 to the very last verse of the book of Revelation. Have you read the whole thing? And then, once you read it once, have you gone back and read it again and again? And once you've read through the entire Bible, maybe five or six times, it takes a while. Usually most folks, the, the figure that I've heard thrown around, and I tend to agree with it, is that if someone's going to systematically go through the entire Bible, it'll take you about a year to read it. And I think that's probably pretty close to true. But I think that unless and until we can say that, yes, I have read the entire Bible cover to cover, we need to be very careful about throwing Bible verses around because it's really easy to take things out of context and it's really easy to, again, get one meaning out of a particular piece of scripture, you know, don't judge others and, and without reading what the rest of the Bible says, you know, for example, it says to judge others and to judge them fairly. And so, again, I think that um, it's, you know, these warped understandings come about, you know, because of people reading the scriptures, interpreting for themselves when not having read the whole thing um, to get the you know the big picture and the whole the whole content the whole context of it that's one with judging and um, the other the other one that kind of goes along with it that I think might deserve a little bit of discussion at this point is the whole topic of anger. Again, many times, you know, people will come up and they're um, either, you know, they're going to confession or they're just talking and they're very frustrated with themselves, really beating themselves up um, because they say, I get angry. And, um, you know, so you have someone that says, well, you know, that I, I got angry with my son. Some mother is all berating herself because she got angry with her son. Well, I think the question you have to ask is, well, why did you get angry with your son? And maybe the mother says, well, you know, he's playing football this fall and he comes home and he takes off those sweaty, stinky clothes that he has and just throws them on the floor in his room. It stinks up his room, stinks up the whole house. And I've told him, son, when you come home, just throw them in the washer and I'll put the soap in and push the button and get it going. You don't even have to do that. Just get the things in the washer so you don't stink up the house. Well... That, in my opinion, I think is a pretty reasonable request. First of all, the request in and of itself is reasonable. Second of all, it's coming from your mother. There is this little thing called the fourth commandment, which requires us to honor our father and our mother. That means obey them if you're a teenager. You hear that, guys? So you have the mother who has made the reasonable request. I want you to bring your smelly football clothes home. Don't put them in your room put them in the, in the washer. Well, then the mother comes home after four or five more days of smelling the, the house all smelled up from the football clothes. And at this point, she gets angry with her son. I asked you five times to put those in the washer and maybe yells at him and so on. Was that a sin? Well, I think not. There is such a thing as what we call righteous anger. What is righteous anger? The easiest example of it is Jesus cleansing the temple. When Jesus cleansed the temple, when he made the whip of cords and drove out the money changers and drove out the people selling the, the doves and so on and says, quit making my father's house into a marketplace. Whenever he did that, he was upset. He was not happy. He was not sitting around with people and trying to form a consensus. He went in and he very angrily cleaned the, cleaned the place out. Did Jesus sin? It's impossible. He's God. He's Christ. How can he sin? He got angry. He did not sin. Therefore, all anger is not necessarily sinful. We call it righteous anger. Well, what is righteous anger? Righteous anger is... When I see something that's wrong, when I see something that's out of whack, when I see something that's morally corrupt, and I get angry about it, and my anger then drives me to correct the situation, then that's righteous anger. In the case of the mother and the son and the smelly football clothes, the mother has 
cause to be angry. There is the fourth commandment. The son owes her respect and obedience. By disobeying her reasonable requests, he is not showing respect and he is not showing obedience. And so therefore, if she gets angry with him over that, that will be called righteous anger. And so, and again, I think that a lot of times, because in our, in our culture, people just kind of have these watered down and half-baked ideas as to what the church teaches and, and what the catechism says and what the Bible says, that then we go around with these false ideas in our minds and we think that, well, I got angry. Anger is one of the seven capital sins. Therefore, I, did, I committed a sin. Not necessarily. Now, on the other hand, if we have righteous anger, which is not a sin, what is unrighteous anger? Unrighteous anger would be me getting angry because I didn't get my own way. And getting angry because I didn't get my own way and throwing a fit, that would be a sinful kind of anger. So again, I think we can kind of see a difference there. But I think the people's basic understanding, kind of the common understanding of things like judging and anger are not entirely and totally illuminated by what, what the scripture says. And also, again, you know, what we find in the catechism of the Catholic Church to fully fill out what we should be, how we should be understanding these things. It is not always wrong to judge. Um, we've pretty much spent a lot of time trying to figure out when we can judge. When can we not judge? When would judging, you know, when the scriptures say, who are you to judge your neighbor? What does that mean? That means judging what I cannot see. It is one thing for me to say, you made a mistake. I can see what you did, and I can make the, the judgment that you made a mistake. It is another thing for me to say, you are a mistake. Can't do that. The only, only way I can say you are a mistake is that if I can see what's in your mind, heart, and soul. I can't do that. Maybe we might come up with some words here that could help us to um, separate the two. We might make a, a distinction between judging and being judgmental. Maybe what we could say, we would say, well, judging means using the, the mind and the intellect that God gave me to compare my behavior or someone else's behavior against the objective standards set forth by God. So if I see myself being generous or greedy, I see someone else, you know, being a drunkard or being sober, whatever the case might be, then I can look at those things and I can say, well, being generous is a good thing. Um, being temperate, you know, when our use of alcohol is a good thing. And so that's good. On the other hand, if I see someone, if I'm being greedy or someone's being drunk or someone's irresponsibly spending their money or whatever the case might be, then I can make a judgment about what I see. Being judgmental is saying that this person is no good. And I can't do that. Only God can do that. Only God can make the judgment of what's inside a person's mind, heart, or soul because he can see it. We can't. And so maybe I think if we understand that difference, we might be a little bit more comfortable with the, um, with, with the imperative that we have from the scriptures that we really do have to judge what we can see and then do what we can to help our brothers and sisters along on their way of salvation. It's the same thing with anger. And again, I think probably the easiest distinction for that, because I think what happens a lot of times is we have the realities in our head, but sometimes we don't have the words to describe that reality. And so we just kind of smush them all together into one thing. There we what we what we might just call selfish anger. I'm angry because I didn't get what I wanted, and now I'm throwing a fit. 
That doesn't do us a whole lot of good. But then there's also what we might call righteous anger. And righteous anger, again, the, the most perfect illustration of that is Jesus cleansing the temple. There is such a thing as righteous anger where I, can, where I am angry because there is some injustice. There is something wrong. Something is happening that shouldn't be happening. And my anger then drives me to correct that injustice. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. So again, hopefully after kind of gone, going through some scripture verses here, a little bit of explanation, you know, we can understand in our head, have a clear understanding as to exactly what judging, you know, what in the, in the good sense, as opposed to being judgmental and, you know, kind of what selfish anger and what righteous anger is all about, that we can understand these things, these, these two things a little bit better. And, you know, as St. Paul tells us in the letter of the Philippians, chapter two, verse 12, we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, hoping to be found worthy in the day of the Lord. Well, maybe understanding these things a little bit better, we can work out our salvation a little bit better, even in fear and trembling. And hopefully by understanding saying these things a little bit better, we can be found worthy in the day of the Lord. So that'll about do it for this installment of the Double-Edged Sword program. Again, thanks for tuning in. I am Father Fred Gatchett, and um, we always want to encourage everyone, I always at the end of every program, always kind of remind people, you can always come to our website at www.dv, that's V as in Victor, dvmercy.com, and there are archived um, chapters or episodes um, episodes of the double-edged sword program and you can listen to those at your leisure sometimes the time here on the radio goes pretty quick this will give you a chance to kind of listen at your leisure and if you want to stop the program and look things up and you know you can do it that way and also then you can feel free to email us or contact us at any time you can call the station at 785-621-4110 and um, leave us leave us a message if you have an idea for a future double-edged sword program that you would like us to um, treat on the air um, we can certainly do the homework for you and, and, and put something like, like that on the air for you. So again, thanks for tuning in for this installment of Double-Edged Sword. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Goodbye and God bless.